Chapter Twelve of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Statler. A love letter. To those who are ignorant of, or indifferent to, the psychic forces working behind all humanity, and creating the causes which evolve into effect, it cannot but seem strange, even eccentric and abnormal, that any one person, or any two persons for that matter, should take the trouble to try and ascertain the immediate intention and ultimate object of their lives. The daily routine of ordinary working, feeding, and sleeping existence, varied by little social conventions and obligations, which form a kind of break to the persistent monotony of the regular treadmill round, should be, they think, sufficient for any sane, well-balanced, self-respecting creature. And if a man or woman elects to stand out of the common ruck and say, I refuse to live in a chaos of uncertainties, I will endeavor to know why my particular atom of self is considered a necessity, if infinitesimal, part of the universe. Such an one is looked upon with either distrust or derision. In matters of love especially, where the most ill-assorted halves persist in fitting themselves together as if they could ever make a perfect whole. A woman is considered foolish if she gives her affections where it is not expedient, and a man is looked upon as having ruined his career if he allows a great passion to dominate him, instead of a calm, well-weighed, respectable sort of sentiment, which has its fitting end in an equally calm, well-weighed, respectable marriage. These are the laws and observances of social order, excellent in many respects, but frequently responsible for a great bulk of the misery attendant upon many forms of human relationship. It is not, however, possible to the ordinary mind to realize that somewhere and somehow every two component parts of a whole must come together, sooner or later, and that herein may be found the key to most of the great love tragedies of the world the wrong halves mated, the right halves finding each other out and rushing together recklessly and inopportunely because of the resistless law which draws them together. This is the explanation of many a life's disaster and despair, as well as of many a life's splendid attainment and victory. And the trouble or the triumph, whichever it be, will never be lessened till human beings learn that in love, which is the greatest and most divine force on earth or in heaven, the soul, not the body, must first be considered, and that no one can fulfill the higher possibilities of his or her nature till each individual unit is conjoined with that only other portion of itself which is as one with it in thought and in the intuitive comprehension of its higher needs. I knew all this well enough, and had known it for years, and it was hardly necessary for me to dwell upon it, as I sat alone in my cabin that night, too restless to sleep, and almost too uneasy even to think. What had happened to me was simply that I had, by a curious chance, or series of chances, been brought into connection again with the individual soul of a man whom I had known and loved ages ago. To the psychist, such a circumstance does not seem as strange as it is to the great majority of people who realize no greater force than matter, and who have no comprehension of spirit, and no wish to comprehend it. 
though even the dullest of these often find themselves brought into contact with persons whom they feel they have met and known before, and are unable to understand why they receive such an impression. In my case, I had not only to consider the one particular identity which seemed so closely connected with my own, but also the other individuals with whom I had become more or less reluctantly associated, Catherine, Harland, and Dr. Braille especially. Mr. Harland had, unconsciously to himself, been merely the link to bring the broken bits of a chain together. His secretary, Mr. Swinton, occupied the place of the always necessary non-entity in a group of intellectually or psychically connected beings, and I was perfectly sure, without having any actual reason for my conviction, that if I remained much longer in Catherine Harland's company, her chance liking for me would turn into the old hatred with which she had hated me in a bygone time, a hatred fostered by Dr. Braille, who, plainly scheming to marry her and secure her fortune, considered me in the way, as I was, of the influence he desired to exercise over her and her father. Therefore it seemed necessary I should remove myself. Moreover, I was resolved that all the years I had spent in trying to find the way to some of nature's secrets should not be wasted. I would learn, I too, what Raphael Santoris had learned in the house of Aselzion, and then we might perhaps stand on equal ground sure of ourselves and of each other. So ran my thoughts in the solitude and stillness of the night, a solitude and stillness so profound that the gentle push of the water against the sides of the yacht, almost noiseless as it was, sounded rough and intrusive. My porthole was open, and I could see the sinking moon showing through it like a white face in sorrow. Just then I heard a low plash as of oars. I started up and went to the sofa, where, by kneeling on the cushions, I could look through the porthole. There, gliding just beneath me, was a small boat, and my heart gave a sudden leap of joy as I recognized the man who rowed it as Santoris. He smiled as I looked down, then, standing up in the boat, guided himself alongside till his head was nearly on a level with the porthole he put one hand on its edge. Not asleep yet? he said softly. What have you been thinking of? The moon and the sea? Or any other mystery as deep and incomprehensible? I stretched out my hand and laid it on his with an involuntary caressing touch. I could not leave you without another last word, he said, and I have brought you a letter. He gave me a sealed envelope as he spoke, which will tell you how to find a Celsion. I myself will write to him also, and prepare him for your arrival. When you do see him, you will understand how difficult is the task you wish to undertake, and, if you should fail, the failure will be a greater sadness to yourself than to me, for I could make things easier for you. I do not want things made easy for me, I answered quickly. I want to do all that you have done. I want to prove myself worthy at least. I broke off and looked down into his eyes. He smiled. Well, he said, are you beginning to remember the happiness we have so often thrown away for a trifle? I was silent, though I folded my hand closer over his. The soft, white, sleepy radiance of the moon on the scarcely moving water around us made everything look dreamlike and unreal, and I was hardly conscious of my own existence for the moment, 
so completely did it seem absorbed by some other influence stronger than any power I had ever known. Here are we two, he continued softly, alone with the night and each other, close to the verge of a perfect understanding, and yet determined not to understand. How often that happens! Every moment, every hour, all over the world, there are souls like ours, barred severally within their own shut gardens, refusing to open the doors. They talk over the walls, through the chinks and crannies, and peep through the keyholes, but they will not open the doors. How fortunate am I tonight to find even a porthole open. He turned up his face, full of light and laughter, to mine, and I thought then how easy it would be to fling away all my doubts and scruples, give up the idea of making any more search for what perhaps I should never find, and take the joy which seemed proffered, and the love which my heart knew was its own to claim. Yet something still pulled me back, and not only pulled me back, but on and away, something which inwardly told me I had much to learn before I dared accept a happiness I had not deserved. Nevertheless, some of my thoughts found sudden speech. Raphael, I began, and then paused, amazed at my own boldness in thus addressing him. He drew closer to me, the boat he stood in swaying under him. Go on, he said, with a little tremor in his voice. My name never sounded so sweetly in my own ears. What is it you would have me do? Nothing, I answered, half afraid of myself, as I spoke. Nothing but this. Just to think that I am not merely willful or rebellious in parting from you for a little while. For if it is true, if what is true, he interposed gently, if it is true that we are friends not for a time, but for eternity, I said in steadier tones, then it can only be for a little while that we shall be separated. And then afterwards, I shall be quite sure. Yes, quite sure of what you are sure of now, he said as sure as any immortal creature can be, of an immortal truth. Do you know how long we have been separated already? I shook my head, smiling a little. Well, I will not tell you, he answered. It might frighten you, but by all the powers of earth and heaven, we shall not traverse such distances apart again, not if I can prevent it. And can you? I asked, half wistfully. I can and I will for I am stronger than you, and the strongest winds. Your eyes look startled. There are glimpses of the moon in them, and they are soft eyes, not angry ones. I have seen them full of anger, an anger that stabbed me to the heart. But that was in the days gone by, when I was weaker than you. This time the position has changed, and I am the master. Not yet, I said resolutely, withdrawing my hand from his. I yield to nothing, not even to happiness, till I know. A slight shadow darkened the attractiveness of his features. That is what the world says of God. I will not yield till I know. But it is as plastic clay in his hands all the time, and it never knows. I was silent, and there was a pause in which no sound was heard but the movement of the water under the little boat in which he stood. Then, Good night, he said. Good night, I answered and moved by a swift impulse, I stooped and kissed the firm hand that rested so near me, gripping the edge of the porthole. He looked up with a sudden light in his eyes. Is that a sign of grace and consolation? He asked, smiling. Well, I am content, and I have waited so long that I can wait yet a little longer. 
So speaking, he let go his hold from alongside the yacht, and in another minute had seated himself in the boat and was rowing away across the moonlit water. I watched him as every stroke of the oars widened the distance between us, half hoping that he might look back, wave his hand, or even return again. But no, his boat soon vanished like a small black speck on the sea, and I knew myself to be left alone. Restraining with difficulty the tears that rose to my eyes, I shut the porthole and drew its little curtain across it. Then I sat down to read the letter he had left with me. It ran as follows. Beloved, I call you by this name as I have always called you through many cycles of time. It should sound upon your ears as familiarly as a note of music struck in response to another similar note in far distance. You are not satisfied with the proofs given you by your own inner consciousness, which testify to the unalterable fact that you and I are and must be as one, that we have played with fate against each other, and sometimes striven to escape from each other, all in vain. It is not enough for you to know, as you do know, that the moment our eyes met, our spirits rushed together in a sudden ecstasy, which, had we dared to yield to it, would have outleaped convention, and made of us no more than two flames in one fire. If you are honest with yourself, as I am honest with myself, you will admit that this is so, that the emotion which overwhelmed us was reasonless, formless, and wholly beyond all analysis, yet more insistent than any other force having claim on our lives. But it is not sufficient for you to realize this, or to trace through every step of the journey you have made, the gradual leading of your soul to mine. From that last night you passed in your own home, when every fiber of your being grew warm with the prescience of coming joy, to this present moment, even though dreams of infinite benediction in which I shared. No, it is not sufficient for you. You must know, you must learn, you must probe into deeper mysteries, and study and suffer to the last. Well, if it must be so, it must, and I shall rely on the eternal fitness of things to save you from your own possible rashness and bring you back to me. For without you, now I can do nothing more. I have done much, and much remains to be done, but if I am to attain, you must crown the attainment. If my ambition is to find completion, you alone can be its completeness. If you have the strength and the courage to face the ordeal through which Aselzion sends those who seek to follow his teaching, you will indeed have justified your claim to be considered higher than merest woman, though you have risen above that level already. The lives of women generally, and of men too, are so small and sordid and self-centered, thanks to their obstinate refusal to see anything better or wider than their own immediate outlook, that it is hardly worthwhile considering them in the light of that deeper knowledge which teaches of the real life behind the seeming one. In the ordinary way of existence, men and women meet and mate with very little more intelligence or thought about it than the lower animals and the results of such meeting and mating are seen in the degenerate and dying nations of today. Moreover, they are content to be born for no other visible reason than to die, and no matter how often they may be told there is no such thing as death, they receive the assertion with as much indignant incredulity as the priesthood of Rome received Galileo's assurance that the earth moves round the sun. But we, 
you and I, who know that life, being all life, cannot die, ought to be wiser in our present space of time than to doubt each other's infinite capability for love and the perfect world of beauty which love creates. I do not doubt. My doubting days are past, and the whips of sorrow have lashed me into shape as well as into strength. But you hesitate, because you have been rendered weak by much misunderstanding. However, it has partially comforted me to place the position fully before you, and having done this, I feel that you must be free to go your own way. I do not say, I love you. Such a phrase from me would be merest folly, knowing that you must be mine, whether now or at the end of many more centuries. Your soul is deathless as mine is, it is eternally young as mine is, and the force that gives us life and love is divine and indestructible, so that for us there can be no end to the happiness which is ours to claim when we will. For the rest I leave you to decide. You will go to the house of Aselzion, and perhaps you will remain there some time. At any rate, when you depart from thence, you will have learned much, and you will know what is best for yourself and for me. My beloved, I commend you to God with all my adoring soul, and am your lover, Raphael Santoris. A folded paper fell out of this letter. It contained full instructions as to the way I should go on the journey I intended to make to the mysterious house of Aselzion, and I was glad to find that I should not have to travel as far as I had at first imagined. I began at once to make my plans for leaving the Harlands as soon as possible, and before going to bed I wrote to my friend Francesca, who I knew would certainly expect me to visit her in Invernessshire as soon as my cruise in the Harlands' yacht was over and briefly stated that business of an important nature called me abroad for two or three weeks, but that I fully anticipated being at home in England again before the end of October. As it was now just verging on the end of August, I thought I was allowing myself a fairly wide margin for absence. When I had folded and sealed my letter ready for posting, an irresistible sense of sleep came over me, and I yielded to it gratefully. I found myself too overcome by it even to think, and I laid my head down upon the pillows with a peaceful consciousness that all was well, that all would be well, and that in trying to make sure of the intentions of fate toward me, both in life and love, I could not be considered as altogether foolish. Of course, judged by the majority of people, I know I am already counted as worse than foolish for the impressions and experiences I here undertake to narrate. But that kind of judgment does not affect me, seeing that their own daily and hourly folly is so visibly pronounced and has such unsatisfactory and frequently disastrous results that mine, if it indeed be folly to choose lasting and eternal things rather than ephemeral and temporal ones, cannot but seem light in comparison. Love, as the world generally conceives of it, is hardly worth having, for if we become devoted to persons who must in time be severed from us by death, or other causes, we have merely wasted the wealth of our affections. Only as a perfect, eternal, binding force is love of any value, and unless one can be sure in one's own self that there is the strength and truth and courage to make it thus perfect, eternal, and binding, it is better to have nothing to do with what, after all, is the divinest of divine passions, the passion of creativeness from which springs all thought, all endeavor all accomplishment. 
when i woke the next morning i did not need to be told that the dream had set her wonderful sails and flown a sense of utter desolation was in the air and my own loneliness was impressed upon me with overwhelming bitterness and force it was a calm brilliant morning and when i went up on deck the magnificent scenery of loch scavig was to my thinking lessened in effect by the excessive glare of the sun the water was smooth as oil and where the dream had been anchored showing her beautiful lines and tapering spars against the background of the mountains there was now a dreary vacancy the whole scene looked intolerably dull and lifeless and i was impatient to be away from it i said as much at breakfast a meal at which catherine harland never appeared and where i was accustomed to take the head of the table at mr harland's request to dispense the tea and coffee dr brayle seemed malignly amused at my remark the interest of the place has evidently vanished with mr santoris so far as you are concerned he said he is certainly a remarkable man and owns a remarkable yacht but beyond that i am not sure that his room is not better than his company i dare say you feel it so said mr harland who had for some moments been unusually taciturn and preoccupied your theories are diametrically opposed to his and for that matter so are mine but i confess i should like to have tested his medical skill he assured me positively that he could cure me of my illness in three months why do you not let him try suggested brayle with an air of forced lightness he will be a man of miracles if he can cure what the whole medical profession knows to be incurable but i'm quite willing to retire in his favour if you wish it mr harland's bristling eyebrows met over his nose in a saturnine frown well are you willing he said i rather doubt it and if you are not i'm not i've no faith in mysticism or psychism of any kind it bores me to think about it and nothing has puzzled me at all concerning santoris except his extraordinarily youthful appearance that is a problem to me and i should like to solve it he looks about thirty-eight or forty said brayle and i should say that is his age that his age mr harland gave a short derisive laugh why he's over sixty if he's a day that's the mystery of it there's not a touch of years about him instead of growing old he grows young Brayle looked up quizzically at his patron. "'I've already hinted,' he said, "'that he may not be the Santoris you knew at Oxford. He may be a relative, cleverly masquerading as the original man.' "'That won't stand a moment's argument,' interposed Mr. Harland, "'and I'll tell you how I know it won't. We had a quarrel once, and I slashed his arm with a clasp-knife pretty heavily.' Here a sudden quiver of something, shame or remorse, perhaps, came over his hard face and changed its expression for a moment it was all my fault i had a devilish temper and he was calm his calmness irritated me moreover i was drunk santoris knew i was drunk and he wanted to get me home to my rooms and to bed before i made too great a disgrace of myself then that happened i remember the blood pouring from his arm it frightened me and sobered me well when he came on board here the other night he showed me the scar of the very wound I had inflicted, so I know he's the same man. We all sat silent. He was always studying the occult, went on Mr. Harland, and I was scarcely surprised that he should think out that antique piece of jewellery from your pocket last night. 
He actually told me it belonged to you ages ago, when you were quite another and more important person. Dr. Braille laughed loudly, almost boisterously. What a fictionist the man must be, he exclaimed. Why doesn't he write a novel? Mr. Swinton, I wish you would take a few notes for me of what Mr. Santoris said about that collar of jewels. I should like to keep the record. Mr. Swinton smiled an obliging assent. I certainly will, he said. I was fortunately present when Mr. Santoris expressed his curious ideas about the jewels to Mr. Harland. Oh, well, if you are going to record it, said Mr. Harland, half laughingly, you had better be careful to put it all down. The collar according to Santoris, belonged to Dr. Braille when his personality was that of an Italian nobleman residing in Florence about the year 1537. He wore it on one unfortunate occasion when he murdered a man, and the jewels have not had much of a career since that period. Now they have come back into his possession. Father, who told you all this? The voice was sharp and thin, and we turned round, amazed to see Catherine standing in the doorway of the saloon white and trembling, with wild eyes looking as though they saw ghosts. Dr. Braille hastened to her. Miss Harland, pray, go back to your cabin. You are not strong enough. What's the matter, Catherine? asked her father. I'm only repeating some of the nonsense Santoris told me about that collar of jewels. It's not nonsense, cried Catherine. It's all true. I remember it all. We planned the murder together, he and I. And she pointed to Dr. Braille. I told him how the lovers used to meet in secret, the poor hunted things, how he, that great artist he patronized, came to her room from the garden entrance at night, and how they talked for hours behind the rose trees in the avenue, and she, she, I hated her because I thought you loved her, you! And again she turned to Dr. Braille, clutching at his arm. Yes, I thought you loved her, but she, she loved him, and... Here she paused, shuddering violently and seemed to lose herself in chaotic ideas. And so the yacht has gone, and there is peace, and perhaps we shall forget again. We were allowed to forget for a little while, but it has all come back to haunt and terrify us. And with these words, which broke off in kind of an inarticulate cry, she sank downward in a swoon, Dr. Braille managing to save her from falling quite to the ground. Everything was at once in confusion and while the servants were busy hurrying to and fro for cold water, smelling salts, and other reviving cordials, and Catherine was being laid on the sofa and attended to by Dr. Braille, I slipped away and went up on deck, feeling myself quite overpowered and bewildered by the suddenness and strangeness of the episodes in which I had become involved. In a minute or two, Mr. Harland followed me, looking troubled and perplexed. "'What does all this mean?' he said. I am quite at a loss to understand Catherine's condition. She is hysterical, of course, but what has caused it? What mad idea has she got into her head about a murder? I looked away from him, across the sunlit expanse of sea. I really cannot tell you, I said at last. I am quite as much in the dark as you are. I think she is overwrought, and that she has perhaps taken some of the things Mr. Santoris said too much to heart. Then... Here I hesitated. She said the other day that she was tired of this yachting trip. In fact, I think it is simply a case of nerves. She must have very odd nerves if they persuade her to believe that she and Braille committed a murder together ages ago, said Mr. Harland, irritably. I never heard of such nonsense in all my life. I was silent. 
I have told Captain Derrick to weigh anchor and get out of this, he continued brusquely. We shall make for poor tree at once. There is something witch-like and uncanny about the place. And he looked round as he spoke at the splendor of the mountains, shining with almost crystalline clearness in the glory of the morning sun. I feel as if it were haunted. By what? I asked. By memories, he answered, and not altogether pleasant ones. I looked at him, and a moment's thought decided me that the opportunity had come for me to broach the subject of my intended departure, and I did so. I said that I felt I had allowed myself sufficient holiday, and that it would be necessary for me to take the ordinary steamer from Portree the morning after our arrival there, in order to reach Glasgow as soon as possible. Mr. Harland surveyed me inquisitively. "'Why do you want to go by the steamer?' he asked. "'Why not go with us, back to Rothsay, for example?' "'I would rather lose no time,' I said. Then I added impulsively, "'Dear Mr. Harland, Catherine will be much better when I am gone. I know she will. You will be able to prolong the yachting trip, which will benefit your health, and I should be really most unhappy if you curtailed it on my account.' He interrupted me. "'Why do you say that Catherine will be better when you are gone?' he demanded. It was her own most particular wish that you should accompany us. She did not know what moved her to such a desire, I said. Then seeing his look of astonishment, I smiled. I am not a congenial spirit to her, nor to any of you, really. But she has been most kind, and so have you. And I thank you ever so much for all you have done for me. You have done much more than you know. Only, I feel it is better to go now. Now, before... "'Before what?' he asked. "'Well, before we all hate each other,' I said playfully. "'It is quite on the cards that we shall come to that. "'Dr. Braille thinks my presence quite as harmful to Catherine "'as that of Mr. Santoris. "'I am full of theories which he considers prejudicial, "'and so, perhaps, they are to him.' "'Mr. Harland drew closer to me, "'where I stood leaning against the deck-rail "'and spoke in a lower tone. "'Tell me,' he said and be perfectly frank about it. What is it you see in Braille that rouses such a spirit of antagonism in you? If I give you a straight answer, such as I feel to be the truth in myself, will you be offended? I asked. He shook his head. No, he answered, I shall not be offended. I simply want to know what you think, and I shall remember what you say and see if it proves correct. Well, in the first place, I said, I see nothing in Dr. Braille but what can be seen in hundreds of worldly-minded men such as he. But he is not a true physician, for he makes no real effort to cure you of your illness, while Catherine has no illness at all that demands a cure. He merely humors the weakness of her nerves, a weakness she has created by dwelling morbidly on her own self and her own particular miseries. And all his future plans with regard to her and to you are settled. They are quite clear and reasonable. You will die. In fact, it is, in his opinion, necessary for you to die. It would be very troublesome and inconvenient to him if by some chance you were cured and continued to live. When you are gone, he will marry Catherine, your only child and heiress, and he will have no further personal anxieties. I dislike this self-seeking attitude on his part, and my only wonder is that you do not perceive it. For the rest, my antagonism to Dr. Braille is instinctive and has its origin far back, perhaps in a bygone existence. 
he listened to my words with attentive patience. "'Well, I shall study the man more carefully,' he said, after a pause. "'You may be right. At present I think you are wrong. As for any cure for me, I know there is none. I have consulted medical works on the subject, and am perfectly convinced that Braille is doing his best. He can do no more. And now one word to yourself.' Here he laid a hand kindly on mine. I have noticed, I could not help noticing, that you were greatly taken by Santorus, and I should almost have fancied him rather fascinated by you had I not known him to be absolutely indifferent to womankind. But let me tell you, he is not a safe friend or guide for anyone. His theories are extravagant and impossible. His ideas that there is no death, for example, when death stares us in the face every day, is perfectly absurd. And he is likely to lead you into much perplexity the more so as you are too much of a believer in occult things already. I wish I could persuade you to listen to me seriously on one or two points. I smiled. I am listening, I said. Well, child, you listen perhaps, but you are not convinced. Realize, if you can, that these fantastic chimeras of a past and future life exist only in the heated imagination of the abnormal idealist. There is nothing beyond our actual sight and immediate living consciousness. We know we are born and that we die. But why, we cannot tell and never shall be able to tell. We must try and manage the in-between, the gap dividing birth and death as best we can, and that's all. I wish you would settle down to these facts reasonably. You would be far better balanced in mind and action. If I thought as you do, I interrupted him. I would jump from this vessel into the sea, and let the waters close over me. There would be neither use nor sense in living for an in-between, leading merely to nothingness. He passed his hand across his brows, perplexedly. It certainly seems useless, he admitted, but there it is. It is better to accept it than to run amuck among inexplicable infinities. We were interrupted here by the sailors busying themselves in preparations forgetting the yachts under way, and our conversation being thus broken off abruptly was not again resumed. By eleven o'clock we were steaming out of Loch Skavig, and as I looked back on the sombre mountain peaks that stood sentinel-wise round the deeply hidden magnificence of Loch Korisk, I wondered if my visionary experience there had been only the work of my own excited imagination, or whether it really had foundation in fact. The letter from Santorus lay against my heart, as actual testimony that he at least was real, that I had met and known him, and that so far as anything could be believed, he had declared himself my lover. But was ever love so expressed? I soon ceased to perplex myself with futile speculations on the subject, however, and as the last peaks of the Scavig Hills vanished in pale blue distance, I felt as if I had been brought suddenly back from a fairyland to a curiously dull and commonplace world. Everyone on board the Diana seemed occupied with the veriest trifles. Catherine remained too ill to appear all day, and Dr. Braille was in almost constant attendance upon her. A vague sense of discomfort pervaded the whole atmosphere of the yacht. She was a floating palace filled with every imaginable luxury, yet now, she seemed a mere tawdry upholsterer's triumph compared with the exquisite grace and taste of the dream, and I was eager to be away from her. I busied myself during the day in packing my things ready for departure with the eagerness of a child leaving school for the holidays, 
and I was delighted when we arrived at Portree and anchored there that evening. It was after dinner, at about nine o'clock, that Catherine sent for me, hearing I had determined to go next morning. I found her in her bed, looking very white and feeble, with a scared look in her eyes, which became intensified the moment she saw me. "'You are really going away?' she said faintly. "'I hope we have not offended you.' I went up to her, took her poor, thin hand, and kissed it. "'No, indeed,' I answered. "'Why should I be offended?' "'Father is vexed you are going,' she went on. "'He says it is all my silly nonsense and hysterical fancies. "'Do you think it is?' "'I prefer not to say what I think,' I replied gently. "'Dear Catherine, there are some things in life which cannot be explained.' and it is better not to try and explain them. But believe me, I can never thank you enough for this yachting trip. You have done more for me than you will ever know, and so far from being offended, I am grateful, grateful beyond all words. She held my hands, looking at me wistfully. You will go away, she said in a low tone, and we shall perhaps never meet again. I don't think it likely we shall. People often try to meet again and never do. Haven't you noticed that? It seems fated that they shall only know each other for a little while, just to serve some purpose, and then part altogether. Besides, you live in a different world from ours. You believe in things that I can't even understand. You think there is a God, and you think each human being has a soul. Are you not taught the same in your churches? I interrupted. She looked startled. Oh, yes, but then one never thinks seriously about it. You know that if we did think seriously about it, we could never live as we do. One goes to church for convention's sake, because it's respectable. But suppose you were to say to a clergyman that if your soul is immortal, it follows in reason that it must always have existed, and always will exist. He would declare you to be unorthodox. That's where all the puzzle and contradiction comes in, so that I don't believe in the soul at all. Are you sure that you do not? I inquired meaningly. She was silent. Then she suddenly broke out. Well, I don't want to believe in it. I don't want to think about it. I'd rather not. It's terrible. If a soul has never died and never will die, its burden of memories must be awful, horrible. No hell could be worse. But suppose they are beautiful and happy memories, I suggested. She shuddered. They couldn't be. We all fail somewhere. This was true enough, and I offered no comment. I feel, she went on hesitatingly, that you are leaving us for some undiscovered country, and that you will reach some plane of thought and action to which we shall never rise. I don't think I am sorry for this. I am not one of those who want to rise. I should be perfectly content to live a few years in a moderate state of happiness, and then drop into oblivion. And I think most people are like me. Very unambitious, I said, smiling. Yes, I dare say it is, but one gets tired of it all. Tired of things and people, at least I do. Now that man Santoris, despite myself, I felt the warm blood flushing my cheeks. Yes, what of him? I queried lightly. Well, I can understand that he has always been alive. And she turned her eyes upon me with an expression of positive dread. Immensely, actively, perpetually alive. He seems to hold some mastery over the very air. I am afraid of him, terribly afraid. It is a relief to me to know that he and his strange yacht have gone. But Catherine, I ventured to say, the yacht was not really strange. It was only moved by a different application of electricity from that which the world at present knows. 
you would not call it strange if the discovery made by mr santoris were generally adopted she sighed perhaps not but just now it seems a sort of devil's magic to me anyhow i'm glad he's gone you're sorry i suppose in a way i am i answered quietly i thought him very kind and charming and courteous no one could be a better host or a pleasanter companion and i certainly saw nothing devilish about him as for that collar of jewels there are plenty of so-called thought-readers who could have found out its existence and said as much of it as he did she uttered a low cry don't speak of it she said for heaven's sake don't speak of it she buried her face in her pillow and i waited silently for her to recover when she turned again towards me she said i am not well yet i cannot bear too much i only want you to know before you go away that i have no unkind feeling toward you things seem pushing me that way but i have not really and you surely will believe me surely i said earnestly dear catherine do not worry yourself these impressions of yours will pass i hope so she said i shall try to forget and you you will meet mr santoris again do you think i hesitated i do not know you seem to have some attraction for each other she went on and i suppose your beliefs are alike to me they are dreadful beliefs worse than barbarism i looked at her with all the compassion i truly felt why because we believe that god is all love and tenderness and justice because we cannot think he would have created life only to end in death because we are sure that he allows nothing to be wasted not even a thought and nothing to go unrecompensed either in good or in evil surely these are not barbarous beliefs a curious look came over her face if i believed in anything she said i would rather be orthodox and believe in the doctrine of original sin and the atonement then you would start with the idea that the supreme and all-wise creator could not make a perfect work i said and that he was obliged to invent a scheme to redeem his own failure catherine if you speak of barbarism that is the most barbarous belief of all she stared at me amazed you would be put out of any church in christendom for such a speech as that she said possibly i answered quietly but i should not and could not be put out of god's universe nor i am certain would he reject my soul's eternal love and adoration a silence fell between us then i heard her sobbing i put my arm round her and she laid her head on my shoulder i wish i could feel as you do she whispered you must be very happy the world is all beautiful in your eyes and of course with your ideas it will continue to be beautiful and even death will only come to you as another transition into life but you must not think anybody will ever understand you or believe you or follow you people will only look upon you as mad or the dupe of your own foolish imagination i smiled as i smoothed her pillow for her and laid her gently back upon it i can stand that i said if somebody who is lost in the dark jeers at me for finding the light i shall not mind we did not speak much after that and when i said good-night to her i also said good-bye as i knew i should have to leave the yacht early in the morning i spent the rest of the time at my disposal in talking to mr harland keeping our conversation always on the level of ordinary topics he seemed genuinely sorry that i had determined to go and if he could have persuaded me to stay on board a few days longer i am sure he would have been pleased i shall see you off in the morning he said 
and believe me, I shall miss you very much. We don't agree on certain subjects, but I like you all the same. That's something, I said cheerfully. It would never do if we were all of the same opinion. Will you meet Santorus again, do you think? This was the same question Catherine had put to me, and I answered it in the same manner. I really don't know. Would you like to meet him again? he urged. I hesitated, smiling a little. Yes, I think so. It is curious, he pursued, that I should have been the means of bringing you together. Your theories of life and death are so alike that you must have thoughts in common. Many years have passed since I knew Santorus. In fact, I had completely lost sight of him, though I had never forgotten his powerful personality. And it seems rather odd to me that he should suddenly turn up again while you were with me. Mere coincidence, I said lightly, and common enough, after all. Like attracts like, you know. That may be. There is certainly something in the law of attraction between human beings which we do not understand, he answered musingly. Perhaps if we did... He broke off and relapsed into silence. That night, just before going to bed, I was met by Dr. Braille in the corridor leading to my cabin. I was about to pass him with a brief good night, but he stopped me. So you are really going tomorrow? he said, with a furtive narrowing of his eyelids as he looked at me. Well, perhaps it is best. You are a very disturbing magnet. I smiled. Am I? In what way? I cannot tell you without seeming to give the lie to reason, he answered brusquely. I believe to a certain extent in magnetism. In fact, I have myself tested its power in purely nervous patients. But I have never accepted the idea that persons can silently, and almost without conscious effort, influence others for either malign or beneficial purposes. In your presence, however, the thing is forced upon me as though it were a truth, while I know it to be a fallacy. Isn't it too late to talk about such things tonight? I asked, wishing to cut short the conversation. Perhaps it is, but I shall probably never have the chance to say what I wish to say, he replied, and he leaned against the stairway just where the light in the saloon sent forth a bright ray upon his face, showing it to be dark with a certain frowning perplexity. You have studied many things in your own impulsive feminine fashion, and you are beyond all the stupidity of the would-be agreeable female who thinks a prettily feigned ignorance becoming, so that I can speak frankly. I can now tell you that from the first day I saw you, I felt I had known you before, and you filled me with a curious emotion of mingled liking and repulsion. One night, when you were sitting with us on deck, it was before we met that fellow, Santorus, I watched you with singular interest, every turn of your head, Every look of your eyes seemed familiar, and for a moment I... I almost loved you. Oh, you need not mind my saying this. And he laughed a little at my involuntary exclamation. It was nothing. It was only a passing mood. For in another few seconds, I hated you as keenly. There you have it. I do not know why I should have been visited by these singular experiences, but I own they exist. That is why I am rather glad you are going. I am glad, too. I said, and I held out my hand in parting. I should not like to stay where my presence caused a moment's uneasiness or discomfort. That's not putting it quite fairly, he answered, taking my offered hand and holding it loosely in his own. But you are an avowed psychist, and in this way you are a little uncanny. I should not like to offend you. You could not if you tried, I said quickly. That means I am too insignificant in your mind to cause offence he observed, 
I dare say I am. I live on the material plane, and am content to remain there. You are essaying very high flights and ascending among difficulties of thought and action which are entirely beyond the useful and necessary routine of life. And in the end, these things may prove too much for you. Here he dropped my hand. You bring with you a certain atmosphere, which is too rarefied for ordinary mortals. It has the same effect as the air of a very high mountain on a weak heart. It is too strong. One loses breath and the power to think coherently. You produce this result on Miss Harland, and also, to some extent, on me, even slightly on Mr. Harland. And poor Swinton alone does not fall under the spell, having no actual brain to impress. You need someone who is accustomed to live in the same atmosphere as yourself to match you in your impressions and opinions. We are on a different range of thought and feeling and experience, and you must find us almost beyond endurance. As you find me, I interposed, smiling. I will not say that, no, for there seems to have been a time when we were all on the same plane. He paused, and there was a moment's tense silence. The little silvery chime of a clock in the saloon struck twelve. Good night, Dr. Braille, I said. He lifted his brooding eyes and looked at me. Good night. If I have annoyed you by my skepticism in certain matters, you must make allowances for temperament and pardon me. I should be sorry if you bore me any ill will. What a curious note of appeal there was in his voice. All at once it seemed to me that he was asking me to forgive him for that long-ago murder which I had seen reflected in a vision, and my blood grew suddenly heated with an involuntary wave of deep resentment. Dr. Braille, I said, pray do not trouble yourself to think any more about me. Our ways will always be apart, and we shall probably never see each other again. It really does not matter to you in the least what my feeling may be with regard to you. It can have no influence on either your present or your future. Friendships cannot be commanded. You will not say, he interrupted me, that you have no dislike of me. I hesitated, then spoke frankly. I will not, I answered, because I cannot. For one instant our eyes met. Then came something between us that suggested an absolute and irretrievable loss. Not yet, he murmured, not yet. And with a forced smile, he bowed and allowed me to pass to my cabin. I was glad to be there, glad to be alone, and overwhelmed as I was by the consciousness that the memories of my soul had been too strong for me to resist. I was thankful that I had had the courage to express my invincible opposition to one who had, as I seemed instinctively to realize, been guilty of an unrepented crime. That night I slept dreamlessly, and the next morning, before seven o'clock, I had left the luxurious Diana for the ordinary passenger steamer plying from Portree to Glasgow. Mr. Harland kept his promise of seeing me off, and expressed his opinion that I was very foolish to travel with a crowd of tourists and other folk, when I might have had the comfort and quiet of his yacht all the way. But he could not move me from my resolve, though in a certain sense I was sorry to say good-bye to him. You must write to us as soon as you get home, he said at parting. A letter will find us this week at Gerlach. I shall cruise about a bit longer. I made no reply for the moment. He had no idea that I was not going home at all, nor did I intend to tell him. You shall hear from me as soon as possible, I said at last, evasively. I shall be very busy for a time. He laughed. Oh, I know, you are always busy. Will you ever get tired, I wonder? 
I smiled. I hope not. With that, we shook hands and parted, and within the next twenty minutes the steamer had started, bearing me far away from the Isle of Sky, that beautiful, weird, and mystic region full of strange legends and memories, which to me had proved a veritable wonderland. I watched the Diana at anchor in the Bay of Portree till I could see her no more, and it was getting on towards noon when I suddenly noticed the people on board the steamer making a rush to one side of the deck to look at something that was evidently both startling and attractive. I followed the crowd, and my heart gave a quick throb of delight when I saw poised on the sparkling waters the fairy-like dream, her sails white as the wings of a swan, and her cordage gleaming like woven gold in the brilliant sunshine. She was a thing of perfect beauty, as she seemed to glide on the very edge of the horizon, like a vision between sky and sea. And as I pressed forward among the thronging passengers to look at her, she dipped her flag in salutation, a salutation I knew was meant for me alone. When the flag ran up again to its former position, murmurs of admiration came from several people around me. The finest schooner afloat, I heard one man remark. They say she goes by electricity as well as sailing power. She's often seen about here, said another. She belongs to a foreigner, some prince or other named Santorus. And I watched and waited, with unconscious tears in my eyes, till the exquisite fairy vessel disappeared suddenly, as though it had become absorbed and melted into the sun. Then all at once I thought of the words spoken by the wild highland Jamie, who had given me the token of the bell-heather. One way in and another way out, one road to the west and the other to the east, and round about to the meeting-place. The meeting-place, where would it be? I could only think and wonder, hope and pray, as the waves spread their silver foaming distance between me and the vanished dream. End of chapter 12